Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. We're back. I'm so glad to see you all. Yes. What a good crowd this morning. Glad that you are here. Yes, I am glad too. We're going to open in prayer in just one second, but I want to make sure that you know a few housekeeping things. This is a Bible study, and we will be doing Genesis this year, and we are planning to do Revelation next year. And so we're going to do, oh man, that was like some <laughs> dirty faces. How many of you have ever studied Revelation? You're lying. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to love it. You're going to love it. All right, so let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we come to you today with grateful hearts for the beginning of a new school year and for bringing us back together as we continue to study your Holy Scripture. I ask that you open us up. Help us to put down all the things that stress us and worry us that occupy our hearts and minds, so that we may have space for your spirit to enter in. Fill us with your spirit of hope and your spirit of peace and your spirit of courage that as we study Genesis together, we will be inspired, renewed, and transformed to help extend your kingdom here on earth. God, be mindful of all of our friends who are unable to be with us today, those who need your healing touch, and those we have lost since we last met. May all of them feel your love, and may we be buoyed by the memories of their presence. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so... I want to make a quick note before we start, and we won't break apart and lose our concentration just now, but there are new faces in this group today, and there are likely people who have not necessarily met most of the people in this room, and so I want to make a note, and I'll remind you of it at the end, but before you leave today to some fun lunch somewhere or, you know, some afternoon fun excitement, I want you to take a minute to meet some people who are around you. I want you to look around as we study, you know, do sort of like the side glance. Don't make it obvious. Um, <laughs> do the little side glance. And if there's someone around you, in front or behind or next to, that you don't know, then we're beginning a new year together. Just tell them you don't know them. In fact, introduce yourself to them, and then let them tell you that they've known you for five years. You know, <laughs> just take the opportunity to meet someone, because there will be people in this room who really don't know anyone, and they want to be in this study, and it feels so much better when you feel like you're in this group together. And so just take a minute. I know some of you are shy. I know some of you are not. And so just share a little love before you leave today, and we'll help build this community together. So today, if you picked up your bookmark or if you got the email, you know that we are doing an introduction to Genesis. We are not actually doing chapter one. This is mostly so for those of you who just showed up and haven't read, you don't feel behind. Next week, <laughs> next week we will be doing chapter one. And so your homework this week is to read chapter one. Chapter one is the first creation story. And if you don't know that there are two, then 
This is going to be a good year for you. Before we begin our study with Genesis, I thought it was important for us to go over a little bit of both the history of Scripture itself and also the Jewish history so that we can really place Genesis properly in our study. So the first thing we're going to talk about is a quick history of the Bible. Those of you who have been here with me the last couple of years, some of this will be review, but I want to just touch on it in case this is your first time with us. The Bible is a fluid library. It is not one monolithic book. Because of the fact that it's a library, it is written in many different original languages, mostly Hebrew and Greek with a little bit of Aramaic. And those books have been tweaked and changed and reordered and translated throughout history. I want to make sure that you have a good translation of the Bible to use for this class. The Episcopal Church officially uses the Revised Standard Oh my gosh, the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV. The New Revised Standard Version is considered by most to be the most accurate translation. However, the NRSV, because it is most accurate, is sometimes a little harder to read. The language is not quite as smooth. And so the other translation that I feel comfortable recommending us to use is the NIV, the New International Version. The NIV is very, very good, but it simply smooths out some of the edges that the NRSV has. The NRSV is as accurate as we can get in English. The NIV just is a bit smoother at times. Sometimes they read the exact same way, but other times it just is easier language. Both of these translations are really quite good. If you have another translation, don't stress about it. I just want you to know that as we go through Genesis, there may be moments where I parse out a particular verse and your translation just might be different than the one I'm using. So I just want you to know that I'm using the NRSV and that if you're using the NRSV or the NIV, you're going to be close enough. If you've got ESV or NAB or whatever, ABC, XYZ, whatever, then it's going to be fine. But just don't worry if for some one day it's a little different than what I'm using. That is a translation. A translation is really taking the original language and being as true to its form as possible. The alternative to a translation is a paraphrase. A paraphrase takes the original language, translates it, and then says it in a way that is a bit more colloquial, a bit more conversational. And the paraphrase that I personally use is the message. A paraphrase can help you figure out what is actually happening in this passage. A paraphrase should never be the only Bible you read, but a paraphrase at times is really helpful to read first, so you get the context, you get the actors and the action. Okay, all that's clear. Then when you go to the translation, the oddness of the language or the structure of the sentences doesn't throw you off because you really do know what is happening in the arc of that narrative. So if you do not have a paraphrase, you can either ignore me, which is fine, or try the message, 
It's actually really easy to read. And if you've got people in your life, whether they're young people or maybe they're people who don't like church or on and on, the message is actually a pretty accessible way to help people enter into the narrative of Scripture. All right, any questions about translation or paraphrase? Question is, what's the difference between the message and the Living Bible? I think the Living Bible is a translation, isn't it? It is a paraphrase? I don't know it. Um, so I'll put it up here as maybe, I'm not old enough, is that what you said? I've never even heard of that. So, so Kristen may lead you astray, but she's offering the Living Bible as perhaps an alternative. So it should say pretty clearly whether something is a paraphrase or a translation. Um, the other thing that often paraphrases will not include verse numbers, or you can get them both ways, which makes it almost like you're reading a novel, which by the way, the Bible does not have verse numbers in it. The verse numbers were added a few hundred years ago so that we could speak very clearly about certain sections. You ever been reading a book and you're like, oh, it's page 67, the second paragraph. Is that the second full paragraph? or the set? And you're like, no, it's the first one. So the Bible just, they added in little numbers so we can drill down very specifically to a certain section and all be on quite literally the same page. The message has versions without those numbers because... Really, it's just a good story, and it may be helpful to read that as, you, as a companion to your translations. Any other questions? All right, as we move from translation and paraphrase, a few other quick notes. I do not read the Bible in total, literally. And so you just need to know, going into this, that I'm not a literalist of Scripture. I read the Bible literately, and I want you to as well. I think that we live in a world where people tend to either read it literally or read it never. And I think that we need to fall in between where we understand the context of the scripture itself. Genesis has a lot of context. And as we go through this study this year, just fair warning, There will be moments when I will say something about part of the story and you will think to yourself, what in the world? Because it's probably the kind of interpretation that you've not heard before. It is because I do not approach Genesis literally. I approach it literally and that it is true. And I will say more about that in a few minutes. The last other note I want to make, and this is just a technical thing because I'll be referring to it a few times. Most of us, uh, uh, all of us, all of us grew up with BC and AD, denoting before Christ or the year of our Lord, right? Anno Domini. I now use BCE and CE. This is before the common era and the common era. If you've been with me before, you, this is not new to you. But if you're new to Bible studies with me, just know I'm going to be using BCE and CE. They refer to the same periods of time. 
as BC and AD, but it is the academically accepted way to refer to the periods before and after Jesus, effectively. And so when I use BCE or CE, I don't want that to confuse you. We've got people kind of coming in the back door. So if you're nice and don't have to sit on the aisle, wave. Hey, find a seat. There you go. All right, any questions about this? That's just one of those little small things I just want to have said to you. Lastly, I will be referring to Genesis as a book of the Old Testament. If you have been in studying scripture or doing Bible studies or around theology for a while, you may wonder why I'm not referring to it as the Hebrew Bible. And so what I want to note to you is the difference between the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament. I don't say Old Testament because I am somehow insensitive. I am actually referring to a specific set of books in a specific order, and they are not the same. Many of you have likely heard the word Tanakh. Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H. Tanakh refers to the Hebrew Bible in three parts. The first is the Torah, which is, the Torah really is the teachings or the law. The next is the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im, that middle section, is in the Hebrew Bible, the prophets. And the last section is the Ketuvim, which is the writings. If you note, Tanakh, all right? Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. The order of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, is the law, the prophets, and the writings. And by writings, we mean things like Psalms, Proverbs, the poetry. The Old Testament reverses sections two and three. So in our Bibles, the Old Testament, Torah, Ketuvim, Nevi'im. The reason we do this differently than the Jewish scripture is because the point of the Old Testament is different than the point of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible actually ends with the Jewish people returning home. Second Chronicles ties up the end of the Tanakh so that the Jews have returned from the exile. But for Christians, the Old Testament does what? Points to the New Testament, right? And the New Testament is Jesus. And so the prophets and the writings are flipped in the Old Testament so that the last book of the Old Testament is actually Malachi, the return of Elijah, because the return of Elijah is predetermined to imply the coming of Jesus. Christians reordered this book, but we are Christian. And if you're not, then we certainly want you to be. Being Christian, see, always evangelism. There you go. For us, the Old Testament is just purposed differently. And so I just want to note, 
I am not being insensitive. I am actually referring to a specific order of books that is not the Hebrew Bible. Any questions about that? Mm. Question is, when did they reorder the books? I'm going to answer that by broadly saying the Bible as we have it is a canon of individual books that were authoritative. What we know as the Bible was not actually nailed down and defined for good until the 15th century. Now, I say that, but that's a technicality. Really, since about the 4th century, the Bible as it exists today has been pretty static. It just simply wasn't official until the 15th century. And part of its being made official went along with the Reformation, because if we remember our church history, the Reformation, in the Reformation, Martin Luther said there are certain books that have been considered authoritative that should not be. And those are books that fall between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They became what we call the Apocrypha. In the NRSV Bibles you will buy in a bookstore, you will have Old Testament, Apocrypha, and New Testament. The apocryphal books are books that Roman Catholic and Orthodox Christians believe are just Old Testament books. But the apocrypha books are what Protestant Christians don't have at all. We, per the usual, fall somewhere in between. And so we keep them as the apocrypha, but we don't necessarily call them the Old Testament. So we sort of straddle the line. Because if you've not heard me say this before, we are not Protestant. We are Anglican. So you've got the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox Christians, the Anglicans and the Protestants. And there are something like 40,000 other denominations of Christianity, but whatever. So we are Anglican Christians and we use the Apocrypha as authoritative, but we note that some of our Christian brothers and sisters out there don't. That's why the 15th century is really when that was nailed down. However, by the fourth century, this reordering of the Old Testament had happened. Partly because as you're living into a new lifestyle, and if you imagine these good Jewish people are trying to follow Jesus and they're reading the Tanakh, and it kind of doesn't seem to imply that Jesus is coming at all. But then they realize maybe the prophets are actually talking about Jesus. And so we see the progression from Mark to Matthew and Luke to John as an understanding of the prophetic vision of Jesus. Well, if the prophets are predicting Jesus, shouldn't they actually come at the end? Because then it goes right into the period of Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. All right, any other questions? All right, now let's get into some Jewish history. To understand Genesis, we must understand the most significant moments of Jewish history. And the most significant moment in Jewish history is the, capital E, exile. The exile comes at both the 8th and 6th centuries 
BCE. I say both because there were two of them. If you think through the big story of Judaism, it goes something like this. There are Semitic people that were sort of dispersed all over the place. God came to Abraham, made a promise with Abraham. Abraham's descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, end up in Egypt enslaved. Moses comes, takes them out of Egypt. They settle in the land of promise, the land of Canaan. Joshua leads them in. And Joshua helps to usher in a period where the tribes all have particular land and then decide that they would like to be unified. Saul gives it a shot. He's not that great. David actually unifies them. Solomon continues that. And then the kingdoms begin to disintegrate. The authority begins to disappear. And they become weak enough to where another group of people conquer them. In the 8th century BCE, the northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians. Then the Assyrians are conquered by the Babylonians, who then subsequently go conquer the southern kingdom. And at that point in time, the Jewish leadership is taken into exile in Babylon. At that point in time, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years, when that happens, the Jewish people lose their identity. Up to that point, Yahweh had been faithful. God had fulfilled the promise. But upon the exile, they asked themselves critically important questions. Wait, who is God? Are we actually chosen? Who are we supposed to be without the promised land? All of those questions lead them to begin to look retrospectively at who they are and who they have been and how they got to that point. It is in exile when the Jewish people begin to reconstruct their history. Like they were putting a puzzle together, they began writing backwards. Genesis is a product of that process. The Jewish people are trying to figure out who they are and how they got there. Genesis helps them begin a story that connects a thread all the way to their exile. That is a very quick, succinct summary of a gigantic idea. Is anything, I shouldn't say is anything unclear. <laughs> Do I need to repeat any of that very high level summary? We're gonna get into the details. But I always work best. If I kind of know where we're going, then I am able to understand the details. So is there anything unclear about the fundamental idea that the Jews were taken into exile and they had to figure out who they were, renew their identity as God's chosen people, and therefore they wrote everything that we call the Old Testament? Is that idea, do I need to flesh that out anymore? Yes, Kristen. <laughs> so the question is, 
If God was with them all the way, did they start to do things that, how'd you put it, God didn't like? Yeah. When the Jewish people were in exile, they began asking some critically important questions. The most critical is, how did this happen? Why that is critical is because there is an ancient understanding of the way that gods work. And we need to understand that in order to understand the kinds of questions that they were asking. The Jewish people were monotheistic in a particular way. And it's actually kind of the same way we talk about God today. So we'll note that in a second. The Jewish people, because of Abraham, Abraham met God, heard God's voice, a single God, and they began to call that God Yahweh. Now, that did not crystallize until Moses. So I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I also kind of don't want to confuse you. So just bookmark, if you've done EFM or something like that, I do know that. So just let me summarize it. All right. I'm looking at some people and they're like, "Mm," you know, I'm like, yeah, 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 I got it. So here's the summary. Effectively, the Jewish people had a single God, but they also believed that everyone else had a God or gods too. And it was understood in the ancient world that what happened on earth among humanity was mirrored in the heavens by the gods. So we know this very clearly with things like Greek and Roman mythology, right? Basically, Greek mythology was established like a divine soap opera to articulate all the weirdnesses of being human. In a similar, different, but similar way, the Jewish people understood that Yahweh was one God among many, but they believed that Yahweh was the strongest of the gods. That was proven true when they entered the promised land. So as Joshua takes them into the promised land, it is a slaughter, right? This is not a pretty period of history. The Jewish people effectively are genocidal when it comes to the people who are living in that place. But because they triumph, the idea that Yahweh is stronger than everyone else's gods is reinforced. So every time they win a battle, they know Yahweh actually is stronger than their God. There was the sense that humans fought and gods fought. Humans aren't really going to win unless their God is better. Yahweh was the best until the exile. And so they had to ask the question, is Yahweh not the best? Is Yahweh not the strongest God? And their answer was, no, Yahweh is the best. Yahweh is the strongest. So, if Yahweh is the strongest, how did we then lose? Their answer is that they must have done something wrong, and Yahweh left them. Because if Yahweh was with them, they would not have been defeated. So they began to soul search. How is it that they got this wrong? What did they do? that led that cr- made them so bad that Yahweh would leave them to be defeated. And part of what happened in the exile, now the exile is only about 70 years. So it's not a super long time. I mean, effectively, someone could have been born and still be alive like, through the exile period. 
when the Jewish people are released, and that happens because, and this is just the ancient world, right? Assyria conquers the Northern Kingdom. Babylon conquers Assyria, so they assume the Northern Kingdom. They then come down and get the Southern Kingdom. Babylon lives for 70 years with all the Jews. Then Persia comes and conquers Babylon, and Cyrus the Great looks at all the Jews and says, what are you doing here? And the Jews said, well, they brought us here, and we want to go home. And Cyrus said, then go home. And so he gives them some stuff, and they go back home, and they rebuild the temple, and they rebuild what is the second temple that is the temple that Jesus goes into. When they go back and rebuild that temple, it is not like Solomon's temple, because Solomon built a pretty space. When those Jews return from exile, they are dead serious that they are not going to make the same mistakes that led to the exile in the first place. And so what do they do? They create a dramatically detailed legal structure that will make sure they do not stray from God again. And the Jewish laws become bigger and bigger and bigger. When we get to Jesus, Jesus's main message is that the law is not going to save you. And I would like to think that Jesus offered that message with a lot of love because he understood why they had created this dramatic set of laws. They very truly did not want to stray from God again. But what happened is all the laws that they created started to establish a boundary between them and God. And Jesus showed up and said, hey, listen, it's really not that complicated, right? If you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, you're good. That's everything. All your laws do is detail out how to love God and your neighbor. And what happens with too many details is that people are excluded. And Jesus said, everybody can be in. Everybody can do this. You don't have to have done every perfect thing every moment of your life. God's grace is much bigger than that. So I'll stop there because that kind of touchstone thread is significant. And it helps me understand all the details when I get that the Jewish people were sort of flying by the seat of their pants, doing the best they could. They go to exile and they say what happened. They want very much to be with God again. And so when they return, they create a lot of laws so that they do not go off the rails again. Follow up? All right. Stepping back through time, let's go back to the exile. Sorry, I'm trying to not make this like so esoteric. Should we, <laughs> should we stand up and like do a shoulder roll or something? I can tell you're paying attention, but I can also tell, especially in the back, people are kind of going, uh, <laughs> no, everybody, we're going to take a deep breath in, ah, deep breath out. Okay. All right. So now let's go back to the exile. The people in the exile are trying to put this puzzle together and they are filling in the gaps. And as you can imagine, there is not a single group of people that have all agreed to fill in those gaps together. No, 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 no. 
It's kind of like church committees. There are lots of groups doing it their way, which is, of course, the right way, right? And so this group thinks they're right, and that group thinks they're right, and that group thinks they're right, and they're all doing it faithfully, but differently. What ends up happening over that 70-ish years is multiple groups tell the story different ways. When they get out of the exile and they come back together and they rebuild the temple, they've got to somehow put this together. And so they take all the different stories and they see that some of them overlap. Great. So they just kind of merge them. Then there are some stories that don't overlap enough to be merged. So then they have to decide some are true and some are not. So some are just tossed out. Then they've got a few stories there that are true and different. Those true and different stories are maintained in what we call the Old Testament. The two very easy and obvious ways to show you that they are maintained is the two creation stories. We will do that right away next week and the week after. There are two, they are different, they are both true. Further on in the Old Testament, if you've read through the Bible once or many times, you know that First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles basically tell the same story, but they tell the story differently and both tell the story in an important, different way. So they were both kept. If you read the Bible chronologically, I should also note, if you've never read the whole Bible, there are plenty of ways you can do this. But one of the ways that I would not suggest you do it is cover to cover. It is confusing and it's weird. If you started the Old Testament, you're cooking along book after book after book after book, and then all of a sudden, it's like you hit a wall and you think, what just happened? Because what just happened is you had two stories that the Jewish leaders both liked, so they kept them both. And the narrative or the chronology stops and it restarts or it pivots or it shifts. And if you don't know how it shifts, it's totally confusing. So I would suggest if you want to read the whole Bible, you follow a particular structure that you can get online. You can get plenty of structures. But why the structures can't be simply front to back is because of this reason. There were good people writing the stories differently. And a few different moments, both are kept. That gets me to an, another important idea that I want to make sure we all I want to make sure you understand how I see it. I do not need you to agree with me, but I want to make sure you understand where I'm coming from. The Bible writ large is true, but almost none of the Bible is historic. And what I mean by that is the stories communicate to us a divine sacred truth about the way God relates to us and the way we relate to one another. And it is not meant to be a historic record of events the way we understand history. The idea of history is a modern construct. Every person who wrote or read the Bible in its period would not have 
even thought of reading it or writing it as history, the way we understand history. They were storytellers. They were writing true stories. It is very critical that you know that I approach it that way. Because when we look at literally the first two chapters of the entire Bible, you could easily say they contradict each other. They do contradict each other if you need them to be literal history. But they do not contradict each other if you're willing to accept that they are true. We'll talk more about that each week. But I am not a creationist in the sense that I think that the world started a few thousand years ago. I think science shows us it didn't. But do I think that God created us and created each one of us and loves us uniquely? Absolutely. And what Genesis offers us is a window into the ancient mind that allows us to know what they thought about their relationship with God so that we can be informed and inspired, but not anchored. Instead, we can actually read these stories with a faithfulness that allows us to be literate, not literal. I'm not even gonna ask about questions for that. We'll, <laughs> we will get there. So just hang with me, because I believe all this stuff but I believe it in a particular way that is not perhaps what you will get from literal fundamentalist interpretations. All right. Actually, I will ask for questions. Questions? Because the next is going to be Genesis. Yeah. Deuteronomy. So, Deuteronomy details laws. When was it written? Before or after the exile? Everything was written during or after the exile. Now, that does not mean that laws like that didn't exist. We are dealing with an ancient people who are mostly oral. And so those laws were passed on orally. Many people lived those laws even if they weren't written down. What happened in the writing down of the laws is they were codified. Um, how can I? Here's a good example. In the first three centuries after Jesus's life, ministry, resurrection, Christians just did it. When, I'm actually teaching on this on Sunday. I'll see you at Sunday school. When Constantine comes along as the Roman emperor and, be, and has a change of heart and believes that the Christian stuff might be true, the first thing he does as a good Roman is he says, then what is Christianity and how can I do it right? And when he starts to talk to Christian leaders, he finds that everybody's doing it kind of different. And that is not okay for Roman structure. And so he calls church councils together 
And the first one we get is the Council of Nicaea. And what comes out of the Council of Nicaea? The Nicene Creed. What is the Nicene Creed? A definition of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because it could not, Rome could not handle lack of clarity. Well, once you do that, then you have something to fight about. And that's what they did. All the first church council did was give everyone fodder and fuel to argue about nuance and particulars. Ultimately, we see that in 1054, there was a schism between the Roman church and the Orthodox church over a piece of the creed where it says the spirit proceeds from the father or the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. We say the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. But the Orthodox said, no, 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 spirit proceeds from the father. And we said, no, wait, if it's a real triangle, then it has to be, no, the Orthodox said, no, God, father is up there. And then son and spirit are down here. And we said, no, it's the, whatever. So I promise you, Jesus does not care. <laughs> does not care. He does not care, right? Because what did Jesus say? The law does not save you. What are we supposed to do? Love God and love each other. That's it. We just can't, we cannot settle if all we have to do is love each other. I mean, <laughs> we just can't do it because we have to then say, but how? And what if that person is unlovable, right? And, and how unlovable can they be before I can finally say I don't love them, right? Because if you're unlovable, like you, you hold your knife this way when you cut your food, then I can get over that, right? But if you're really mean, can I get over that? If you hurt someone, can I get over that? If you kill someone, can I get over that, right? And on and on and on. It's, we don't like lack of clarity because all Jesus says is you have to love each other, period. Ah, we don't like it. And so what happened with the Jewish people is they were just doing it, right? Moses gave them 10 commandments and they just sort of did that. But apparently that didn't work because the Babylonians conquered us. So we can't be loosey-goosey about the commandments anymore. When God says, love God, what does that really mean? When the commandment says, honor your father and mother, what does that really mean? And on and on and on. So even though there were implications of laws, everyone kind of did it their own way. It wasn't until the exile and then after the exile where they codified those laws. Does that make sense? So everything, everything, everything that is the Old Testament was written during or after the exile, everything. It does not mean they did not exist in spirit in some way, but it was all oral. It was not written. It is not written until later. And a similar thing kind of happened with the New Testament. I mean, if you've ever studied the New Testament for just a minute, you know that the oldest gospel we have was from the 50s. Well, why would there be at least a couple decades between Jesus's life or Jesus's death and resurrection and writing the first gospel that's in our New Testament? 
mostly because none of those followers of Jesus thought Jesus wasn't coming back. It wasn't until they started dying that the followers of the apostles said, oh, hold up. Maybe Jesus isn't coming back right now. Maybe Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Sure, he said so. But maybe it's not just yet. So we need to write this stuff down so other people know because we may die before Jesus returns. It's, they're all kind of similar in their, in their oral tradition. Oral tradition turned law. And that's when we get in trouble. You can ask any altar guild member in this church. And <laughs> the joke with me is whenever they ask me anything about anything, I always say, whatever you think. <laughs> and because it, honestly, whatever. So long as we do it faithfully, we're good. And that just makes most of your skin crawl because you just want the rules. And, you know, my family knows that I always say rules are just suggestions. So that's all Jesus did. He just suggested we love each other. That's it. Okay, any other questions? Yeah, that's a very that's a very astute question. So the question is even though the people were trying to nail it down, define it, get it right. And I think get it right is very is the proper way to put that. They were really trying to get it right so that the exile kind of thing didn't happen again. There are books in the Old Testament that don't seem to want to nail anything down and are vague and nebulous and narrative and don't ever tell you what the moral is. Great examples. Ruth is a great example. Job is perhaps the best example where if you read through Job, at the end, you're sort of left with, so, so what, right? I mean, you kind of want someone to tie it off in a bow and say, so then bad stuff happens to bad people, or bad stuff happens to everybody, get over it, or whatever. I mean, like, what really is the point? And there is none. It's just the story. The writings fall underneath that category. So if we, if we think through the teachings, really, that is law. The prophets, they are people trying to hold everyone accountable to the law. And so if you've, if you've not studied the prophets, effectively the prophets are at a point in time where something is going wrong. And so the prophets say, hey, Jewish people, something's going wrong and this is what's wrong and this is what you have to do about it. And they hearken back to the law. The writings are really separate from all of that. And the writings is where you get stuff like Job get stuff like Psalms and Proverbs, where they're not really legal, but they're true. And we have to parse that stuff out. You know, if you read Ruth, I love Ruth. And if you read through Ruth, what you get in that whole story is the multifaceted, real depth of true love.
That's the whole story. And most people will read Ruth and be annoyed that there is no clear-cut moral. But I think that's probably the best way to understand God. There actually is no clear-cut moral. It's just love. That's it. And it's messy, and it's hard, and it's hurtful, and it's beautiful, and all the rest of it. It's true. So to keep that section kind of pulled out a little bit, You've got the law and the interpretation of the law, and then you've got just other stuff that amplifies what is true. Any other questions? So now let's get to, very specifically, Genesis itself as we prep for next week. The Old Testament is in three basic parts. You've got the world and the nature of the world, that is the first section, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Let me write this up here. The world and its nature. And effectively, that's Genesis 1 through 11. The second part of the Old Testament is really Israelites and their purpose. Israelites and their purpose. And that begins with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and that effectively goes all the way through the period of the judges. So that includes, you've got, it begins with Abraham, it goes through Moses, and the period of the judges. The judges are the, is the period right before the kingdom period. And then the third section of the Old Testament is really the kingdom. And you might say kind of Judaism in its modern expression or its more modern expression, and that is effectively from David onward. This kind of division of the Old Testament is important for us because it necessarily divides Genesis in two halves. You get the first half of Genesis, or two parts, because it's not really half and half. The first part of Genesis is Genesis 1 through 11, and that is what I would call cosmic. It's big. You get creation, you get the Tower of Babel, Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, Noah, and the flood, and all that stuff. That's kind of the cosmic big stories. Then there is a pretty clear pivot. The very end of chapter 11 says, we go from this person to that person, and we land with Abraham, and it's all genealogy. This person to this person, this person, this person to Abraham. So we go from what are the big mythic stories, the cosmic stories, to something that sounds much more genealogical. And so I call the second part of Genesis ancestral. So we go from cosmic to ancestral. Because for the Jewish people, the whole point of Genesis is to get to Moses. Genesis exists 
so that we go from the beginning to Moses. Because Exodus, the second book, within the first few verses, says a Pharaoh arose in Egypt that did not know Joseph, and Moses is born. So the whole point of Genesis is to explain how the Jews are in exile in Egypt and how Moses saves them. So Genesis for us, for our purposes this year, we will do the cosmic section and then the ancestral section. As we go along, there will be moments when I will parse out and try to unpack this idea of truth and history. And we'll do that with specific examples so that it's not just this nebulous theoretical idea. But as we go through, I will try to nail that down for you. And we will begin next week with the very first creation story. It might help you before next week to read both the first two chapters. They're easy. It's, it's a pleasure. Read them both. And then perhaps after next week's class, read them both again. Because it's difficult to hold them side by side. And if you, are re if you really like the legalism, then you can easily Google a, a, a chart that shows, that matches up in two columns the ways that the stories are similar and different. Because sometimes the narrative, it's difficult to read one chapter, then read the next chapter and hold all that in your head. Sometimes seeing a chart side by side actually helps process the differences and the similarities. So any questions about process before we kick in with chapter one next week? So reminder, I want you to get the emails for this class. So please do make sure you sign up on the clipboards if you did not get the email. There is a companion book that you are welcome to get and they are for sale in our bookshop. And there are some people around you you don't know. So take a few minutes, say hi, and make a new friend. See you all next week.